Hey, welcome to the most entertaining weather podcast. This is the award-winning Stormfront Freaks podcast, and we are live here at the National Storm Chasing Summit in Midwest City, Oklahoma. We're just uh, just outside of Oklahoma City, and uh, we're going to have an opportunity on this episode to talk with a number of the speakers. Many have been uh, guests on our show in the past, but uh, we're going to have some little segments here with our speakers and uh, it should be a good show. I want to do a special shout out and thanks to all of our Patreon members that uh, make this happen and uh, help support the show. You can go to patreon.com slash stormfrontfreaks and find out all the ways that you can help support us uh, and all the cool ways we can provide more content and more cool opportunities for you. I know here at the summit we've had a chance to meet a couple of our VIPs uh, in person, uh, we've met Dan and Angela are here, uh, so that's been uh, been a lot of fun. But I uh, also want to uh, mention that uh, we're looking forward to uh, some of the great episodes that we have coming up as well. Uh, so don't forget to subscribe or follow Stormfront Freaks podcast on your favorite podcast player, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, um, Google Podcasts, all those different options. Um, when you find us, go ahead and follow, uh, push the follow or uh, subscribe button so that you can get notified the minute we have some new episodes uh, released for you. So uh, stay tuned. We've got some uh, great little segments here from some of the speakers like uh, Jeff Piotrowski, uh, Daniel Shaw, Brandon Clement, Tim Marshall. Uh, those are just a handful of them. Uh, so enjoy. Going green. Greenage. Hey everyone, it's MJ, technical producer for the Stormfront Freaks. As you heard, Phil was live at the National Storm Chaser Summit for this episode. Please remember that he was recording interviews in a hotel lobby with a lot of background noise. While the audio quality may not be the best, the interviews with some giants in the chaser and weather worlds are can't miss. We start off with Phil talking to former National Weather Service testbed meteorologist Gabe Garfield. Enjoy the show. The December 10th outbreak... Mm-hmm. There was, you know, at least on social media, there was uh, a lot of people that were in uproar about how quickly the classifications were getting issued and yeah. what the classifications were. I had never seen anything like that before. Yeah. But what what was your take on all of that? Uh, I wasn't surprised. Um, you know, based upon the way that I had experienced tornado ratings up to that point. It's not that F5 tornadoes don't occur anymore. It's just that our understanding of what it takes to generate a 200 mile per hour wind has changed uh, over the last decade or so. And as a result of that, to be consistent with what we know, we, you know, folks are rating tornadoes a little lower. Um, and then given the probability of impacting the kind of structure that you would need to actually rate a tornado F5, it's just so improbable. It almost seems impossible. And it's a little, it's a little uh, misleading, I think, on some level, because I think it's like that, there's like a narrow window, right? There's only like two or three structures that you can actually get to that 200 mile per hour threshold or whatever that you can ever encounter. And I think at this point, the only way we're going to get past that 200 mile per hour threshold is if we include Doppler uh, wind measurements you know, from uh, global radar stuff. So, I don't know. I mean, I, I understand people's frustration with it. I'm not really, it doesn't really bother me because, I mean, I think, you know, do, do I think that tornado was an F5, you know, on the old scale? Absolutely. Do I think it could have, uh, you know, if it had hit the type of structure that could, could have caused F5 tornado damage, would it have been rated F5? Absolutely. Um, right. No, I just—it's part of the system. So, so it sounds like you—you're—you you're, are in favor of some sort of a um, recalibration of the yeah. measurement system. I, I am. Uh, I know that there is a, a you know move towards that. You know, incorporating some of the new science into kind of a, a set of standards. I, the only thing I ever think about with a new set of standards, and I'm all in favor of that. You know, advancing the science is. You know, it'd be nice to do that retroactively and look at some, you know, past events that may have been rated F4 and say, okay, according to these new standards, what are they rated? And that's where my idea is, in, you know, it has been actually, you know, 
reflected in some commentary on Twitter. I've seen actually pretty interesting stuff, but you know, this idea of a, uh, a database that has, instead of just one single composite F rating, right? F4, F5, F2, whatever, that you would actually include all sorts of different columns as you have the data uh, say, you know, okay, for a wind speed, you know, based on damage, this was only an F3, like El Rita, right? Based on the damage, it was only an F3, but based upon mobile Doppler radar, that was an F5. And so you could say, okay, according to our current composite rating, definitely in the F3, but if you're interested in saying, taking a climatology of, you know, a different tornado based upon wind speeds captured by mobile radar, you could say, okay, we have a different data set to deal with. So you can kind of slice and dice as you want to, rather than just kind of, okay, here's your single rating, deal with it. Um, so I'm, I'm in favor of expanding that. We have lots of computers, uh, computer space available, so why not take advantage of, you know, the cheapness of, you know, databases and, and build that. It, would, would you foresee any issues with, if you went that route and you mm-hmm. used radar data, places that don't have as, you know, close, radar yeah. is not close enough or it's too high in the atmosphere? yeah. yeah. I mean, that would, that would certainly create those issues, for, especially for the composite rate, rating. But I would argue that that's already the case, right? Because of the, you know, the impact to uh, populated areas, right? Um, we know that tornadoes tend to be rated higher when they're closer to populated areas than they are if they're out in the middle of nowhere. Um, in fact, uh, Josh Worman did a, a study, gosh, you know, 10 or 12 years ago, maybe longer, maybe 15, that looked at, like, their complete data set of the Doppler on wheels you know, up to that point, all the tornadoes they'd seen was like 200, and calculated like the average wind speed in that tornado data set was actually in the EF3. You know, these were tornadoes that were, I think, on average, if you take you know their F scale rating, maybe at EF1 or EF2, um, but hmm. you know, taking that actual wind speed. So uh, the other factor is, you know, when you talk about population centers, you know, gosh, urban expansion, you know, that's happened, right? Cities are growing, and so now your EF Rating is going to go up, just not by any change in the atmosphere, not global warming, whatever. It's going up simply because people are building out from cities. And now you have the structures to, yeah, to so, use. So I don't know. I don't think there's much of a, a data set to preserve. I, I tend to be very pessimistic. I say do the latest and greatest. That's, that's my opinion. All right. So we're here uh, with Brandon Clement, uh, Emmy Award-winning photojournalist, and, and, uh, but in this community mostly known for his uh, drone chasing. Uh, he's done some amazing footage. That's what you talked about tomorrow, I know. Um, this is relatively, I know you've been doing it for a little while, but I know it's still a relatively new video way, right, to chase through drones. There's a lot more to it. Um, let's say you've got someone brand new, very interested in considering that. What What's some advice for someone who's brand new looking into that as far as equipment and things they need to be aware of and looking at. Well, first, make your hiring on, and uh, as far as the drones go, it's completely different than what people imagine when they first try to get into it. So that's what my talk's going to be about tomorrow. Uh, it's explaining that, yes, drones bring a whole new dimension of video, a different perspective. Uh, it gives you different types of capabilities, particularly like in the south with storm, where you can get up over the tree level and see where the wind is on the ground. Uh, it also brings a lot of risk to that drone, and that's what a lot of people understand. There's a lot of a lot of preparation that goes into it. It changes the way you chase. Uh, when you're wanting to use a drone, if you're wanting to try and get it on a tornado like I do, it's a ton of practice, really good understanding of the wind currents around a tornado. Uh, you want to really understand your video with the drones. It takes a lot of practice to get there. Uh, I think everybody could use it and utilize drones in some way or another without having to dump a lot of money or investment in it. Whatever you want to get out of drones, you have to put into it to get back. So how does it work? Explain a little bit to those that don't know. It takes a lot of practice to fly high winds to understand what you can do. I mean, you have to be in sport mode. In order to get that video stable when you're in sport mode, everything's really fast and sensitive. And when you're standing next to a tornado and you're focusing on the drone, and when I say standing next to it, people think you're like three or four miles away. You can't do that. You have to get close because you have to be able to see the drone. So if you're close enough to see the drone, you imagine how small like a pickup truck is, looks when a tornado gets thrown. Uh, you can imagine how small the drone is. So you have to be close to this tornado. And you're giving your attention to the drone while you're that close to a tornado. And 
you're trying to keep your thumb still at the same time because there's an adrenaline rush, there's a nerve factor, and then you're looking at what's on the screen, get shaky. So to try and get the video stable is really difficult. It takes a lot of practice for that. Uh, and loosen the drones. You got rain. I was going to say, how many of you lost? RFT. Oh, man. This year? Um, <laughs> I melted. I melted two on the, the volcano in La Palma. Uh, lost one on the volcano in Hawaii. Wait a minute! You melted two. Yeah. So you didn't learn your lesson on the first one? Is that? Well, no. The video. <laughs> the video. I just wanted the video. It was like I was just, just call seven, so I, just, I did it. So. Uh, and then the volcano Hawaii. I had one going to a thermal shutdown. Too hot, overheated. Just decided one to go swimming in lava, and then I hit a power line over the Red River. Lost one there. Lost one somewhere in Lake in Mississippi. Had uh, I was in Nazare, Portugal, and big wave surfing, and the winds just got really That's strong. Kidding, really. And yeah, it's one of those 80, 90, 70 to 90 foot waves come over and try to surf them. It's just wild. Wow, love it. But, um, the winds are really strong from off the coast right sure. there. Uh, it took one drone and just took it out to sea. Uh, lost one in Hurricane Isaias. Uh, just fell out the sky for winds. I lost one in... Uh, I kind of lost two in Isaias. And then, let's see, I lost one in... Top of the song Beta. I was actually on the side of the road, oh, right? Kidding, filming. Really? Surge coming over a road, and some guy like late at night comes across three lanes of traffic, rear ends me going like 70. And I had my window open, the drone was on the dash, okay. and it flew out. I, I even know say, it. How did I was like, What part is this? And he's picking up a drone. Uh, All right, so we're here with uh, media director and storm chaser Daniel Shaw. Uh, Daniel, so your, your talk here at the National Storm Chaser Summit was really on, on media and content protection thought it was really good. You, you did a great job with it. I think a very important topic. I will say this, and this is these are what my questions are going to be about. For the average or new chaser, right, who's, who's not going out, maybe not getting all this great video or great, you know, the great photos, probably mostly video what we're, we're covering here. Go ahead. Yet. yet. <laughs> but yeah, true, true. But to simplify it, Right, to simplify, because I, I would say this, and, and part of it might be just me personally listening to everything. Some of it can be really overwhelming, right? Mm -hmm. and, and for the Daniel Shaws and the Hank Shimas of the world, you know, where there's lots of great content, it's getting stolen like crazy, and I get it all, and there's a lot of money there. But for, the, for, for an average chaser who's getting some content, now granted, as you talked about, some of the stuff could go viral in a minute. Mm -hmm. Right, even if it's some Joe Chaser, um, what, simplify the process of how can I pr protect my content, or through whether it's the, the watermarking or the just give us some simple things to take away uh, that we can look forward to, so that stuff's not getting stolen from us. Okay, it's really quite simple. Uh, every single chaser out there, if this is your passion. Uh, but know that when you do capture that oh my god moment, your content is valuable. Don't give it away and contact a licensing broker to help manage it. We're done. It's been great having you. See you later. Until next time. Great, great talk. Okay, bye. Great, great, great talk. So, which is, which is perfect. So, that's it. It is that simple. Their content so, is valuable. If someone has asked for it, saying we would like to share it, it's valuable. Anyone messages you and says we want to share it, use it in any way, it's valuable. It's that simple. So they get that message, Daniel. Hey, can we use your your content with credit to you? Uh, what what is your? You did a great job of saying. Here's what your response should be to that. Well, the thing is, this is where it gets interesting. There's two different types of we'd like to share this content with credit review. There's we just want to share it. And there's ones that want to redistribute it. They make it sound really attractive to people saying, hey, we'd like to share this with our viewers. Now, if it's a local TV station, actually it's three parts. If it's say to your local TV station, which it might be an ABC or CBS affiliate, for instance, 
if you thinking it's just, oh, I've been watching this station since the age of eight. I love weather. My favorite meteorologist is messaging me. Half the time, they're actually bots that automatically send this stuff out. It's actually not them. It's a, a computer sending out random key tags to say, we'd love to use this content. It's really just a computer sending it, hoping you respond and fill that request. Sometimes they're real people. Um, but what happens in that request process, if you say you gave it to your local TV station, thinking, look, I'm just giving it to my local station, it's major content. They're saying an ABC affiliate or CBS affiliate. If you gave it to that one station, they may be bound by the affiliate terms. This is where it starts to get interesting, but also complicated, but I'll simplify it. If you give it to that one station, they may have to feed it back up to, say, CBS. CBS will put it onto a system called CBS Newspath. CBS Newspath might go up to 2,000 networks globally. So what you would have thought would have made, say, three, $400, just got sent out. You just lost $40,000 in content sent to your local station because you've been watching them since the age of eight. So if you want to look after your local station with a bit of free content because you love the local meteorologist, you want to keep your community informed, you could effectively... I hope this is not too complicated for you. You could effectively say to that local station, WTVK or whatever it is, you can use this content, make sure I get name correct. However, it's only for you and you cannot send it to any other affiliates nationally or globally that will then have to be licensed. So you've looked after your local station, people that may have given you that little profile on you, maybe support your storm chasing page, just a local station. But you've stopped the feed for international affiliates where that content then, instead of being to one local network, just went out to 6,000. And they may be obligated under the affiliate terms to do so. And I'll go one stop further. Then you've got the other viral social media agencies. I won't mention the names, the risk of being sued, but some are out there to say, hey, we'd love to share this with our news partners. Our partners are this and this and this and this, and you'll be famous. We'll give you name credit. You sign up for this non-exclusive contract where you get paid nothing, and they actually force media companies that want to join their subscription feed, they have to pay to get access to your content. Now, these companies might obviously contact you directly, but this company is putting it onto a wire feed which people have to, companies now have to pay for globally to source this content with permission because they happen to secure it. And you've just agreed to those terms to distribute it to say thousands of media organizations where they're charging for your work, which you've given them for free thinking they're just reporting the news when in fact their result is to actually resell your work and you just didn't know who you're dealing with. Then there's a third part where they go, hey, we'll give you part of the commission and you'll get like a 60-40 split or 50-50 split but there's a minimum out and there's also a maximum payout. So say the footage was worth $35,000, you may only get $1,000 and you for the rest of your life have to refer every single sale to them and you're committed to them for life. So any documentaries, Nat Geo, Discovery Channel, that might be worth one or $2,000 for something historic, you'd have to then refer that sale to them. Otherwise you'd be in breach of their contract and you'd still get nothing because you've agreed to a lifelong term of being capped. So the best answer is deal with a local licensing agent. We do it across Australia and globally. I refer you back, uh, the American chases back to the American distributors. We've got some really good ones that know how to get value from every network and also all the discovery channels, all the national geographics, all the documentary producers. So there's a simple answer, the one I walked away on, and there's the complicated answer. In effect, no, if you've captured something on camera, which is like, I can't believe what I just captured, look at this, and you start sending it to everyone, think before you act. If you've captured that holy hell moment, um, know that it's worth something and protect it. Is it going to sell? Who knows? But I guess, it, I tell you what, if it is major content historic, you'll be regretting this to the day you go. So, so is, that, is, that an, is that a good answer for you? It, it's a good answer. I, I guess the, the re, here's what I'm looking for is the response, right? Joe gets gets a video posted on Twitter and then all of a sudden gets, hey, we'd like to use your name, blah, 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 blah. What's their response? Like, what should their Twitter response be back to? Well, it depends if they have a licensing agent on. Their response would be, well, first of all, happy Let's say no Twitter. at first. Let's say no no, no licensing agent at this point. Okay. If they have no licensing agent, the first thing they should do is make sure it's watermarked. Have not for media use licensing available, or at least as a statement. If they can't watermark, say, 
licensing, say, tornado just happened near Pilger, Colorado, or Pilger, Nebraska, in this case, or Campo, Colorado. Licensing available, contact me via email. And, of course, the email address will be in their profile. That's the best way. So embed into the tweet, media licensing available. That's it. Just a simple declaration. If you can't watermark it, say it within the tweet itself. And, and then, which is perfect. So then the next question is, I, I, I don't have a licensing agent. It seems like it's complicated or it might cost money to get one. Uh, how simple is that process to do? Well, so that I've got something, even though it might be used once a year. Hmm. Well, any licensing agent will look after this at no cost. If it's a big piece of content, you send it through. Hopefully you're signed with them or it can be done on a case-by-case basis. We look after a lot of public and professionals in Australia through Severe with Australia. We can also do it through Global WeatherNet as well. If the licensing agents aren't, con- aren't contactable, you can't get through to them, contact us. We can look after it if there's all else fails and we can distribute that globally as well. I prefer the U- the Americans obviously use the US agents, but if you can't get through to them, simply get in contact with me or make them wait. It's that simple. If it's valuable content, it's on your terms, not theirs. They have a limited time to get this online, but the media organizations are on time pressure. You need to act very quickly, and when it's a major piece of content, you're looking upwards of 50, 60, 80 inbound messages all wanting a piece of your content. And most of it will be a free request and there'll be some that are prepared to pay for it. Fielding between the two is the tricky bit. This is where a licensing agent knows how to deal with it because we'll push that out. So if they contact you, say, contact LSM, Doug Keesling, Global WeatherNet, you get the idea, you're Corey Hartman, Severe Studios, you can say contact here for licensing if you don't have one because you can always add that as a message below. Workflow and being prepared is the key thing. So when it happens, you're prepared for it. Uh, okay, so we're here with um, morning meteorologist Emily Sutton from KFOR TV here in the city. So, so we've had people that have, have just stopped by here to thank you for what you talked about. What, what have you heard as far as what you said that have helped other people already today? It's been really incredible, the vulnerability of a lot of these chasers that are coming out and talking to me and opening up about their experiences they've had. I think the biggest thing is they said thank you because this isn't really talked about. Yes, mental health is becoming more talked about in general in society, but like I said in my talk, you know, we are quick to talk about how excited we are to chase, how sad we are that there's a bust, but nobody really wants to talk about what we saw after a bad tornado. And also, trauma manifests in different ways because we all have different life experiences. So someone may already have past traumas and then you throw this on top of it and it's too much or buckets full. And so that's why one thing may impact one person and another thing may not. Or you've seen all these things and all of a sudden one thing sticks with you and you don't know why. And a lot of that has to do with the processing of your brain and filing away these things. And the biggest thing I learned from my mentors, it's my own personal counselor that helped me out after May 2013 tornadoes that I'm still seeing now, as well as one of my best friends who's a counselor and trauma specialist in the state of Missouri. So I got all the information from that. The biggest thing I learned is the mind-body connection. So we may be thinking that we're fine and we're going to shove things under, sweep things under the rug, but it's going to manifest itself physically at some point and catch up with you. Oh, like how, how have you heard of that happening or mm-hmm. personally of, of that mind-body connection where that's popped up later? Right. It can pop up instantaneously in the moment. So, um... There's a whole list of my talk and can I go over it? Yeah, sure. Because um, I want to get it. I don't want to get all the signs and symptoms wrong. But there are tons of signs and symptoms. I mean, a whole list, but I just gave some of them. And um, let's see. Physically, um, rapid heart rate, shaking, headaches, indigestion, trouble sleeping, cognitive would be blaming, hard to concentrate, memory problems, emotional examples would be anxiety, crying, survivor guilt, that's a big one with storm chasing, Um, relational would be withdrawal from friends and family, behavioral would be increased drug and alcohol abuse, Um, outbursts, inability to rest, change of appetite, and then spiritual would be questioning God. So, 
70% of Americans say they have experienced trauma. It's probably a low range too. Okay, so what have you found has been helpful for you to deal with or, because you don't always overcome that, but, but right. as you deal with it, what are the things that personally help you? Well, I think just recognizing that, if you recognize the signs and symptoms, uh, since it is a mind-body connection, the way you can fix it is doing something physical. Now, thankfully, I love to work out and do things physical anyways, but if you can do something and just get it out, mm -hmm. I think for a lot of chasers, that's probably just screaming. For me, what I talked about in my talk is, you know, May, May of 2013 in Oklahoma was big. You rarely had back-to-back -back violent tornadoes. So May 19th, I was chasing the EF4 Shawnee Little X tornado, and the next day was May 20th, mm -hmm. the F5 that hit more. Um, and that really impacted me because it was the first huge disaster I've seen to that okay. magnitude, but I was also chasing it, and we pulled up at 19th Street, and I could see the mile-wide tornado barreling down in the town. Our main job as, an, as a meteorologist is trying to warn and save people but I knew in my heart, watching it hit the town, that people were going to die. And you only have a second to think of that because you're chasing and it's heading towards you. And okay, we got to go south. And so we headed south, we turned around, and that's when I saw the huge black cloud crossing the road. I mean, it took up the entire horizon. And I saw debris precipitating from the sky, heavy precipitation. And I realized it's people's homes, livelihood. Uh, but you don't have time to process that because you're so focused. And so we kept chasing it. We call into the station. The towers were down. Watched it rope out. Kept chasing. But it's about 20 miles east that stopped. And we opened up our laptop to play our streaming coverage again. And we found out that the schools were hit and seven children passed away. Well, we didn't know seven at the time, but we knew children passed away. And so that was absolutely devastating. I mean... And why, right? Why weren't there storm shelters? It's the whole thing is incredibly frustrating. Um, so that happened, and then you don't want to sit at home with your thoughts. And we're also a news organization; it doesn't stop. So I had a few hours of sleep, came back to the station because we had twenty-four hour coverage. Then I'm also a journalism major. I wanted to go out, and really, honestly, I just. I stay busy, and I think it's because I didn't want to process, and also that, that sense, yeah. feeling of helplessness. That's why we have the Oklahoma standard where everybody jumps in and does something, and the thing I could do is tell stories. Yeah. So went out, actually talked a lot to Tim Marshall while he was doing some of the analysis after the storm and looking for the damage. Um, that's a lot on your psyche anyways, because you're seeing all the people who are coming up to you and thanking you who just lost everything, right? And... Again, I've never seen anything like this, so it, it was a lot. And my good friend, her neighbor is a counselor, and she, she heard my voice when I was chasing, and she, it sounded a little shaky, rightfully so. I never standing right in front of it, a mile-wide tornado. Yeah. Um, and she volunteered to come to my house and help me out and so she did something called EMTR and that mimics rapid eye movement which is when we sleep REM sleep is crucial for filing away our brain processing what we went through for the day but especially for traumas so she takes her you can do it multiple ways but just to do it at my house she she just moved her fingers back and forth and my eyes followed it like rapid eye movement and you're supposed to think of the thing that's bothering you the most and feel the emotion. So for me, it was the thought of being helpless as I'm watching people die. So I was thinking of that and she's such a blessing because I wouldn't have asked for help. I didn't even know I needed it. And she was there helping me and I think what it's supposed to do is take it from the front of your brain and help file it away. Because otherwise it can surface later whether you know it or not. Right. Well, then a week and a half later, we had the widest tornado on record. I was chasing that day. I was actually just a, a mile or two miles west of where, sadly, Tim Samaras and his son and then Cole Young passed away. Um, so that's when the tornado turned north. It was very erratic tornado caught many structures southward. And it went from one mile wide to 2.6 miles wide in 30 seconds. 
when that happened, I thought it was inflow that blew out my back window, but uh, it was it was actually the outer bands of the tornado we did just analysis. And I was driving backwards and, and we crossed 81, which is such a, a miracle that no one was driving it down 81 and didn't hit us, but we hit the guardrail and the camera comes crashing down. Oh, and that, no. that's the clip that we were fine, but the clip makes it look like we died. Oh, sure. um, and it was on MSNBC, CNN, the other channel. My parents were like, they didn't know I was even chasing that day. <laughs> outside of, they live outside of Chicago still. And so we ended up being fine. But then after that, you know, when we found out the devastating news of the deaths of, you know, the, our pioneer in our field, Tim Samaras, if he died, I think all the storm chasers woke up because you have to feel a little invincible to storm chase. We all woke up that day. Like, what? If this man, who is a, a veteran and pioneer, passed away, we all almost died. And I still think I had somebody come up to me here and he admitted to me that it, he had the same exact experience. Um, he had a close call even closer than mine to being hit by that tornado. He was in the outer bands of it. And he said he didn't realize until two years later how much it had impacted his life and made him depressed. And that he thought it was all these other things, but he went and got counseling. So I'm really happy that he, I'm amazed that he was proactive and took care of it. But I'm just thinking how many storm chasers Absolutely. don't do anything. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So it's a blessing because I don't think I would have had the help if she wouldn't have pretty much showed up at my door that day. And so because of that, I'm okay, but the next time I, I went chasing and got caught in circulation a few years later, I was in a circulation. I definitely felt all those signs and symptoms. My heart oh, was I racing. Imagine. It felt like a panic attack, you know? Oh yeah. But, um, yeah, so I just really hope that more people talk about it and we can destigmatize. And the big, the biggest thing is the buddy check, too. If you feel fine, maybe your buddy is not okay. That's a good point. Yeah. That's a good point. So here at the uh, Storm Chaser Summit, uh, there's been lots of talk about uh, chasing and driving, especially in bad weather. And so you don't have to be chasing. Uh, you could just be driving to see your friends or family, maybe across uh, the border. Uh, it might be maybe you're going across multiple states, but you got to check out the Drive Weather app. You can find that on your Apple Store or in your Google, uh, Google App Store. Uh, those are available there if you go to Drive Weather app or go to driveweatherapp.com. And this is a great tool because what you can do is you can map out your entire trip and it's going to tell you what the weather is going to be like throughout your entire trip at each point uh, of, of your travel. So if you're, let's say you might be uh, down in um, Burlington and you want to head up to Chicago and you just you map that out on Drive Weather app, uh, it gives you your route. And then it tells you if you leave at this time of the day, you're going to be arriving in these locations uh, at this time of the day. And it tells you, is it going to be snowing? Uh, is it going to be raining, cloudy, foggy? Is it going to be clear? Um, but it gives you that entire forecast throughout your entire route. And so the neat thing is at the bottom of the app, you have a slider. And the slider, uh, you can determine if you want to change the time that you leave, that you depart. And changing your departure time can actually, as you would be aware, changes what the, the weather forecast is going to be along your route. So you might see if you leave now, maybe you're going to hit some snow as you get closer to Chicago. But if you delay your trip maybe just a couple hours, you might avoid the snow. And of course, if you can avoid that kind of weather when you're in Chicago, you're certainly going to avoid a lot of traffic. So that's what's great about it. Again, go check out uh, Drive Weather app. Uh, at your app store or just go to driveweatherappapp.com uh, and find out more. All right, so we're here with uh, Hurricane Man, Josh Morgerman. Um, Josh, you, you did a, a great presentation on Hurricane Dorian. Um, and if anyone hasn't had a chance to see that footage, where, where can they find that footage? Hey, go to my YouTube channel, it's okay. iCyclone, and there's, uh, there's one Hurricane Dorian video, and it's, uh, it's long. I think it's like a half hour because it goes over, it covers the event over several days. But if you want to go to the, the meat of it, it's sort of closer to the beginning when the hurricane's really hitting. Yeah, and, and it's one of the comments people were making was how uh, the, the human story in that, it's not just hurricane footage, right? It's you were there with the locals, dealing with a massive uh, cat, cat five hurricane 
Um, and so it was really good. So I encourage everyone to do that. But here's what I want to ask you a little bit about, Josh, is um, you've had the opportunity to have some TV series, get your name, image, and likeness. So I'm, I, I work in the sports industry, collegiate sports industry, and now uh, NIL, name, image, likeness, is becoming a big thing in the NCAA and, and selling uh, an athlete's abilities to sell their name, image, and likeness, uh, which hasn't happened before, but it's a big thing. Um, you've got that. And so, so my question is when you're this in the weather community, so you come to a show like this, Storm Chaser event, in the weather community, it's, you've got like rock star status because of that opportunity to be seen so much, uh, which is well-deserved because of the experience that, that you have. First, tell me, what are the pluses to that? Like, like what are the things you like about the fact that people do know who you are, especially in the hurricane chasing weather industry? What, what, what's fun about that? That's a great question. I think um, I think the big joy in it for me is, you know, as storm chasers, we're all artists. You know, we're, we're creating we're creating videos and, and, and experiences and sharing those with people. And, and so if you're an artist, there's nothing more satisfying than getting that out to people and then having people give you feedback on it and say, oh my God, that was so intense. Like you brought me into that experience. Like I, I just get such a rush from that. Like that's what I really want to do with my, you know, my videos and stuff is bring people who've never been in a hurricane into that experience. And I feel like having a big audience means you're, you're really doing it you know you're connecting and that's like that's super satisfying you know just like the the, the feedback and the appreciation you know um when i'm on a chase and i'm alone somewhere like on the other side of the earth and some on some sort of you know remote part of mexico or the philippines and you know it's a very lonely life a lot of times especially because i'm mostly a solo act and I'll tell you, man, that the crowds on Twitter cheering you on, I, I swear to God, I get strength from it. It's like, I really, so I appreciate it. The minus side, you know, it cuts both ways. You know, I was, it's funny, I was, I was thinking, you know, I was, I was chasing this year and I'm, I'm doing, I'm doing, uh, you know, live shots for Weather Nation and I'm like tweeting video, you know, like, you know, furiously and I'm just like, you know, setting up uh, equipment and calibrating it and just driving and and aside of me, it was like, wow, this has gotten really complicated. And I thought back to the 90s when you know, pre-internet, pre-social media, pre-mobile phones, uh, you know, this is going to sound crazy, but in my early chases, and this is going to sound nuts, I didn't even bring a camera. It didn't even occur to me to film it. I just wanted to be in it and feel it. And, and when I look back at it, I, I kind of sometimes I miss that. Wasn't trying to tell a story. I was just like totally in the moment, not even trying to record it for myself. Sometimes, sometimes I miss that. And the other thing I'll say, I don't bust often. Okay, I got you know I'm really competitive, and I, I you know like I, I'm really you know I'm a very competitive guy. I treat this like a sport, and I don't like. Can I curse? Oh, absolutely. I don't like. Yeah. Up. Yeah. And and I don't do it often. I'll do anything to make sure I get narrow, but when I bust. You know, it's embarrassing when you have hundreds of thousands of people watching it. So there's that too, sure. you know. So, so, and I can imagine when you are chasing outside of the U.S., there's a little less recognition, maybe, of, of who you are when you're around the hurricane. But imagine in the U.S., it's a little different. It's a guess, because only because I personally haven't chased hurricanes, but there's probably fewer people that chase hurricanes maybe compared to the chaser convergence of possibly tornado chasing. But but, but here's the question. I asked the same question to Reed, Timmer. Um, when you're out, as, as far as a drawback of being, a, again, quote-unquote rock star, not thinking of a, a better thing to call it, but again, in this niche, in this industry, when you're out chasing a U.S. hurricane, and you stop at a convenience store to get some, you know, what are the drawbacks to now that people know you and want to talk to you, want to take a picture with you, want to, whatever it might be, and you chase solo, and you're used to having freedom and flexibility to go where you want, when you want, and now you're getting this attention at the convenience store. What, what are the draw? I mean, what are the drawbacks to that? What, what are your, what are your thoughts on it? 
that part is tough because when I, you know, like I, I'm constantly making sports analogies because I look at this like a sport. And when I'm chasing a big hurricane, I'm really in like tournament mode. And I get kind of in like a zone. I'm really in like a zone. I'm just kind of deep in my thoughts. And I'm, I'm kind of not always wanting to tell people. Now, I have to go on TV and do the live shots sometimes. But then, okay, turn the camera and perform. And then I turn it off. And then I'm like, and, you know, and, and so... I like sort of blending in and being anonymous and, and not being noticed while I'm on the chase. I like to, I like to have like a high profile on social media because then I'm curating the, I'm curating the bits that I'm deciding to share. You know, I'm deciding when it's going to be on camera. But yeah, I generally like try to avoid people. I'm, I'm pretty anti-social when I'm chasing. I like to just kind of be in my own zone. And it's why chasing abroad when I'm chasing in Mexico or the Philippines or whatever. One thing I like about it is that I just totally no one knows who I am. I'm just like you know, I'm clearly a foreigner, but they don't. They might not know. You know. That are kind of a wild storm chaser or anything, and it's a little, it's a little more relaxing in a way, you know. And the hurricane chasing has changed. So, so it used to be that basically, I've, like most of the storm chasing community was tornado guys. There were a couple of us hurricane dudes, but there weren't many. And people didn't really chase hurricanes. Even the tornado guys that weren't into it. The U.S. right now, you know, U.S. hurricane activity is very up and down. Right now, we're in like a very busy phase. Starting in 2017, the U.S. has had one year after another of just these huge impacts. So a lot of the tornado guys are like, "Oh, those those are kind of cool too." So now there's there's we're almost getting that kind of chaser convergence thing, which was always like, you know, my good friend James Reynolds. He's you know the British guy who lives in Tokyo. He's my buddy, and, and like me, he's a very prolific international chaser and a tropical cyclone guy. And he and I are always talking, you know, quietly to our ourselves about the tornado scene we're always kind of comparing them and we, we always look at that tornado convergence thing and we're like the, the, you know, the chaser convergence thing and we're always like, <laughs> like, right. like thank right. the lord we don't deal with that but but a little bit in the u.s you're starting to yeah. i noticed on some chases that you kind of like i look this way there's some chasers i look that way there's you know, wow. you know, it is what it is, but it, hey, listen, it's nothing like what you, you tornado guys deal with where it's like, I mean, I've seen those pictures, <laughs> you're all lined up taking the same picture. And, uh, you know, part of what I really enjoy about hurricanes, like the thing I really get a thrill from now is being, and I talked about this in my presentation today, but being in the middle of nowhere, um, you know, in some remote part of Mexico, and I have like, you know, calibrated instrument instruments collecting high quality data that go through the core of the hurricane, and those are the only data that exists from this hurricane. And then National Hurricane Center has data for me to use that kind of give them the missing puzzle piece to figure out what happened. I love that. In the U.S., you got a lot of other people measuring it, sure. so, so you, sure. your work feels less valuable. Yeah. Sure. Last question. Um, I know we talked earlier that that you're not yet at the point where you're checking forecasts for um, upcoming tropical season, but when that time comes, what are you looking at? What are you looking for? Yeah, it's a really good question. So, so the, the, the big, the, the number one question going into any season is, you know, is that the Enzo state is it going to be La Nina? which means it's going to be really busy in North America, or is it going to be El Nino, which means it's going to be busy in, well, the Pacific. I, I, let, let, me, let me rephrase that sort again. The Enzo State will decide if it's the Atlantic or the Pacific. Basically, there's an inverse relationship. So so, so if it's La Nina, it's going to be more of an Atlantic season. If it's El Nino, it'll be more of a Pacific season, which is not just East Asia, but also the West Coast of Mexico. Uh, or is it neutral? So that's, that's the big thing I look for. Now, does it affect my plans? I'm not sure because last couple of hurricane seasons, because I can't go to East Asia because of the uh, pandemic, since I'm stuck in North America, I decided to just live in Mississippi during the summer, so I'm right in the heart of the action since I'm not going to East Asia. If it looks like the Pacific could be busy and I'm going to have access to East Asia, I might have to rethink that plan. Because one of the benefits of living in L.A. when I have global access is L.A. is a great diving board to get to East Asia or the Caribbean. Sure, sure. So it, it's a question. I'm probably going to be in Mississippi again, but but if it looks like it's going to be a super-duper busy Pacific season, then maybe not. Hmm. Okay. we got Tim Marshall here, engineer, meteorologist. So here, here's my biggest question. I did catch you talking a little bit about it um, as you guys are up there with the panel covering uh, December 10th, the outbreak. Uh, here's, Tim, my question to you. So there was a huge outcry that I have never seen or heard before on social media 
about the speed at which the classification of those tornadoes were being issued. And then once they were issued, the fourth was at an EF4, an EF5. You talked a little bit about determining the classification. What did you think about this outcry of why people needed to know this so quickly and why it was such an important deal, whether it was four or five to begin with? Well, first of all, we are now living in a society where people need to know now. They don't want to wait 15 minutes, an hour, whatever. I used to have a magazine called Storm Track Magazine. And there we would post what people saw two months ago or three months ago, four months ago, in a newsletter. And that was a hit until the internet. And then when the internet came along, people wanted to know now. They didn't want to know months from now. So the subscribership is amazing how it plummeted from a thousand subscribers down to like 200 subscribers in a matter of a couple of years, just thanks to the internet. So it's <laughs> Thank you. the first the first answer to your question is is that people just want to know now. We have a shorter attention span now we did years ago. Any reason why you think, like I just hadn't seen that yet from any other storm like I saw it for that particular storm. Any reason why you think that one brought that out for any more particular it's, it's, reason? It's pretty common. Yeah, the media puts on a lot of pressure about wanting to know immediately what it's rated. But now you've got a 250 mile long damage track and the weather service has got to send out multiple teams over multiple days. And the media is just saying, wait a minute, you know, it's perishable. The news is perishable. And if we can say what it is rating-wise before a competitor, then we'll get a better scoop out of the deal. But the longer you wait, the less the viewers tune in. Viewers are tuned in right there, right after the disaster, and then they dwindle away. So, yeah, there's a pressure put on the government to get that rating out as soon as possible. Okay. Then, then let's hit the classification. Why was it so important to people that it was a five or a four, in, in your opinion? I think it's a badge of honor. I think people want to be as bad as it could possibly be. It was a bad tornado, don't get me wrong. It was a violent tornado. To me, it doesn't matter whether it's a four or a five, but to a lot of people, it does. And I even got hate mail as if I were the one just because I was on the scene. Sure. I was not the one that determined the rating. Correct. The National Weather Service determines the rating. I was just the cog in the wheel. I was asked to go look at a few points on it. But there were other teams out there. And nobody felt it was a five. And part of that, as I explained, was the fast duration of it. It was an intense tornado. Had it been able to sit for more than a few seconds over a spot, yeah, it might have been a five. So it's just, we have to go by damage. Do, do you, and you might have covered this and I maybe didn't catch it, um, do you personally feel like there should be some adjustments to the rating scale and, and now that we have access maybe to more information and more data than we've had before? Well, we are in the process of upgrading the EF scale. I am on the American Society of Civil Engineers right. committee where we are taking the original EF scale, and we are vastly updating it. It's going to be a massive piece of work, but you know, it's going to be the first step in standardizing the EF scale. Literally, will be a standard. So I, I, I heard there are a number of people in that group, correct? That uh, putting that together. Yes. Right. Which, so we're going back to that speed question, right? Everybody wants it now. <laughs> That's not going to work, is it? Now when you got 80 <laughs> scientists who are 80 chefs in the kitchen, and every one of them has their own way of doing things, and we have to resolve every comment. We cannot dismiss anybody. So this has been a very arduous task. Probably one of the more arduous tasks I've ever done. Really? It's even worse, I think, than, than trying to do a PhD uh, dissertation. It's, it's just amazing. It uh, started in 2014. 
It is now 2022. I don't see this thing coming out until at least 2024, 2025. It's practically a 10-year project to get this out. It's very difficult. All right, so uh, here with uh, Jeff Piotrowski, um, storm chaser extraordinaire, legend. Uh, I don't know. I've chased it for years. It seems like it. So, um, so here's here's my question. A couple of things I want to get into uh, with you a little bit is uh, number one. Let's let's talk a little bit about what you talked about here at the summit, which was uh, the future of storm chasing, and you covered electric vehicles. Um, give us a little snapshot of that discussion because I thought it was very enlightening. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I knew it was going to be uh, either going to love or hate, right? Uh, so I'm not on the bandwagon of like, hey, I'm going to hand this down everybody's throat and we're all going to be electric tomorrow. But what I'm saying is, look, um, you know, I've been around, I've been, you know, built houses in Tulsa for a number of years and I was in energy conservation even back in the settings during the oil crisis. And I used to clock water straight buildings and um, I did lower doors where I pressurized houses and find out where the leaks were and seal those up. And so I've always been around energy stuff and understood energy and conservation and gas and and, and the oil industry, and I'm understanding all those things. So as we go forward, if you look at the technology over the last, this really the last, well, really the last 10 years, but really the last three to five years, EV globally has hyper-exploded, right? Yeah. Not just in the sense, people think of cars first, but it really goes beyond that. It has to do with batteries, it has to do with, um, you know, uh, chips, ferries, uh, on the gas. The list just goes on and on. Most people don't know this, you know, the electric car was out before we had the combustion engine. Electric cars actually started in the early 1800s, right? This shocks most people. They are like, right. really? Right. Yeah, yes. So actually, um, Henry Ford's wife and the Rockefellers, uh, wise, actually owned an Anderson back in the 20s and 30s before we even had the Model T, right? Because they were electrical. They were, they were, uh, we remember back in the 20s and 30s, trying to crank the cars were very hard for ladies, right? Sure. Because it took a lot of uh, effort to do that. Well, they had electric vehicles back then, right? So electric cars, and, and that's been around for a long time. Then we got to the combustion engine. And, and, and service well, really well, great, right? You know, the whole world's been built on combustion engine of some form. And really over the last five or 10 years, we've gotten a battery technology to where different kinds of batteries, different sizes, and the cost has come down dramatically. So now there's this parity where you can almost do something electric at the same cost you can, can gas and oil and, and those kind of things. So there's that, that we're crossing that barrier where you brought it down from 200 kilowatts uh, uh, per hour uh, cost to generate uh, uh, you know, the batteries. And that numbers went to 150, 140, 130, 120. We're getting down to $100 a kilowatt hour, and that's kind of parity with gas, right? That break-even point where it's the same. So we're, we're getting below that. I think this year we'll probably pass that in 22. But on a global scale, and I wasn't kidding when I was doing my presentation today, if you go to, if you go to Twitter, you know, Facebook and these things, you go to Twitter, YouTube, and you and you just Google EV in general, EV batteries. If you follow, you know, a couple dozen people on a global scale, there's literally 10 to 15 articles an hour, 24 7, some of the world about some new EV planes. I mean, United's ordered, I believe it was 100 planes from a European manufacturer. It's going to be delivered in 2025, electric jets that'll have a range of 250 miles. Okay. They're going to be megawatt plus batteries, but there'll be no fuel in the car. They're like, they're still going to get FAA approval. But those things are already going in the pipeline. There's, there's ships now over in um, Iceland and, and uh, off the uh, Norway. They have 100% um, powered um, ships that do move people and cargo, you know, the ferries from island to island, and this big five megawatt articulate arm comes out and touches the boat, the ferry boat, and charges the big batteries, and then after 30 minutes to an hour charging, the boat can run all day again, back and forth across a 30-mile open area, carrying hundreds of thousands of tons of cargo, yes, 100% electric, with no with no diesel in the air. So you start looking at that, and you look at Norway, the adoption of EV there, including China, uh, massive adoption in there, with Shanghai, you got the Tesla plate now getting open. Hopefully, the announcement will be this week uh, with uh, Austin. Uh, the gig, gig, uh, you know, Austin opened up with the Model Y, and then, uh, hopefully, the announcement Thursday is going to give us a roadmap onto the Cybertruck, uh, which is going to, I think, going to be one of the most uh, innovative vehicles in history. Um, not only from its capabilities, but uh, just the, its capabilities from a storage station perspective. It'll be the last vehicle I ever own. I know that for a fact. Uh, it's because of how it's made, the battery, the technology, as far as important as the safety. In it is going to be unparalleled to anything we've seen in history, right? They've already proven that. So I think from a storage perspective, I think the Tesla trucks will be the most safest vehicle 
uh, Amberbilt and America that you want to have. So, so answer the question, Jeff, because I think that's obviously what mine and everybody else's thought was before your presentation is how do I storm chase in an electric vehicle? Where do I go right, to recharge? Right. They're, they're, they're not where I chase. Right, right. So what's happening, one of the things I showed today, you have the Tesla superchargers, and there's a fair amount of them. There's some, there's some gaps in the planes right besides the interstate. Because we're, we're going to Dodge City, we're going to Woodward. Well, the good news here, at least in Oklahoma, and there will be soon in, in Kansas, Nebraska, Texas, is uh, uh, Francis Solar here in the state of Oklahoma has put in, I don't know, two or three hundred uh, charging stations and we're in different parts of the country. And they're in Woodward, they're in Diamond, they're in Liberal, they're in uh, gosh, they're at Clinton, Weatherford, they're in Altus, they're all over the place, right? And uh, so that's why I brought up the PlugShare. I, I encourage the listeners to download the PlugShare app, go in there and look, and you just zoom into your community, and you'll see hundreds around. And the good news is those are, um, you know, there's probably next to 5,000 a month being deployed across the United States. Hotels, shopping centers, gas stations, Walmart's put in, electrified mirror, and a lot of Samsung. Okay, so if you got that going on, uh, I heard uh, last week that Exxon Mobil is looking at possibly putting in a half a million charge in the U.S. because he said they think that's the next big breakthrough. And they said it's actually going to, this is, a, I wish I had the, the exact quote in front of me. This is from the president of Exxon, said last week, that we, we run the numbers and they think in the next 24 months that electric vehicle charging as having an electric, 100% electric gas station gas station charges in here are going to be more profitable for Exxon than gas station. Yeah, well, they got to figure something out, right? right? So you I mean, got to put hundreds of right. thousands of charges in, right? you got to make it easy for the people. you got to make it simple. It's got to work when you get there. Um, it's got to charge at a high rate of speed. So um, all those things are wonderful. And I, like I said, you know, look, we need to build Rome in a day. It's going to take some time to get, to get iron out the kings. But I'll tell you one of the things the most rewarding is be able to charge at your house. I got a, I got a real basic car right now. It's a leaf. I didn't spend you know hundred thousand dollars on it. It's like fifteen thousand dollars. A real inexpensive car, right? You got to use leaf because uh, I want to test. It. Hey, am I going to really do this, or is it going to yeah. be worth it, right? Because I didn't want to take a bunch of money to an expensive car. I thought, oh, I don't like this, right? So I was real about it, and I, I put in a charger, five hundred dollar charger. I plug it in home, and the winter months where I live, northeast Boston, a real electric company here. Six cents a kilowatt cost me a dollar fifty. That's a dollar fifty to go 100 miles. My cost to operate the car is 1.5 cents a mile. 1.5 cents a mile compared to a truck or SUV, 15 to 20 cents a mile. You've got to change the oil, you've got to buy the gas. If my cost is 90% less than anybody else, so if you're a service industry, an air conditioning company, a price control, and you've got multiple trucks and SUVs out there on a daily basis, you're you're, running, you're spending two or three hundred dollars a day, maybe sometimes, or a hundred dollars a day in fuels. Good point. People's yeah. operations. I, I was in construction in Tulsa 20 plus years. I know I know guys that have 20, 30 service vehicles on the field. I can say those companies, if you look at it, and the, and the trucks and the and the um, uh, pickups and the SUVs and the Amazon's building, you know, Rivian's building, Amazon uh, delivery vehicles, those vehicles in Ford as well now is ramping up. Uh, those vehicles are going to be, you can go to any manufacturer in the next year or two. There's a bunch of new cars in May and deliveries coming out. They do buy a work truck. It doesn't have to be South Germany, an everyday work truck, Ford, look at Ford F-150. And I can go in there and if I can see your cost, if you're spending three to five thousand a month, ten thousand a month for fuel, you're running a service park. I, I, I say you're, if I cut your fuel bill by 90%, no old changes, all of a sudden, I got a real good business case. I can have my ROI on the, my investment of, of going to all electric probably a year, year and a half. You get the tax credit, okay? So that's another factor. And again, you bring your cost in, so your guys out there, instead of costing you $500 or $1,000 a week for fuel for each one of your trucks, I'm down to $100. It changes your entire business structure, right? So here's the secret. If you don't get on board with electric, if you own a business today, my, my motto, and I, I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's I'm, a, I'm a numbers guy, and you just look at the numbers. Tell me what you're spending today uh, at your house or or two vehicles. When I when I change, when I get rid of my path lights, so I got rid of uh, the pilot, and they're both great vehicles. I love both of them, right? And I went kid on I did. I got put rid of both of them. My gas consumption, my fuel cost a month went down about six hundred a month. My insurance went down hundred and fifty dollars a month. Oh, yeah, really? two. oh yeah, That's my true. interest rate went in half. Why? It doesn't take as much cost-wise to repair an electric car. I don't have an engine. Hmm. I don't have a fan blade. If I hit a deer, I don't have a fan blade, right? Yeah. Eating the radiator, right? It costs a lot less. In most cases, it costs a lot less to repair an electric car than it does combustion engine, right? Car. I'm calling ice, right? Internal combustion engine. That's the key word. Um, so when you start running all the dynamics, 
you know, like for example, Tesla's got interest down in Texas, uh, Ohio, I think they announced in Arizona this week. So if you look at that, if they can offer, because they know you're driving, you, you update, if you, you want to be uh, autonomous, they have, you're driving how fast you accelerate, how hard you brake. They, they give you a, basically a credit, kind of like a, a driving score, and it can range from zero to hundred. And if you drive real aggressively and you drive speed, speed in them on top, they know how fast you drive because you're continuous driving. Yeah. They, they, your interest is going to be higher, right? You're a greater risk. But if you're a cautious driver and you uh, are cautious about things, then you get a you get a lower premium. So. Right now, Tesla in most states on the insurance brought up as the third half of most insurance companies. Why? Because they know their drivers are real tired and, and it doesn't take as much to repair. So when you start thinking about the business model, I've got I'm a save on insurance, I've got a real-time reporting of where the vehicle's at. The, the chances of being stolen is slim to none because they know exactly where the car's at, right? They can kill it. If somebody did steal your car, they can kill it, send a message to the dead, right? At the stop driving strikes right? So the recovery's high, nobody wants to tell them because they can't get away. Um, and you look at the time driving and just the safety stuff I was hoping to show. You go online and Google uh, you know uh, computation of, of Tesla avoiding wrecks and full auto um, full self-driving. It's 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 today it's about an eight to one ratio compared to the standard car. Uh, and in the 22-23 it'll be at about almost 10 to 1, 10 times safer to drive a Tesla Model Y3, the X or a truck as it comes out, cyber truck, uh, than any other car made in America. And we're out the field with weather and you've got oh my gosh you got hydroplane, you got Nice roads. You've got deer running out front. I've hit two or three deer in like 40 years of chasing, right? It's not fun. Um, and those kind of things, and just the safety from that alone, it's worth buying the vehicle. And, and, and it's talking about something that's talking about emergency situations where uh, you have loss of communications and things. Let's say you need to go to a hospital and you can't know where the closest hospital is. You just type in your test and it says, hey, here's the regional medical center. I'm in middle of Western Kansas. I don't have no idea. And if, and if I'm injured or I need to get to the hospital I'm having a problem, you hit the hospital and the car will so far drive you to the hospital. I don't even have to be conscious if I'm full autopilot. Okay? Are you kidding me? And they've done this for years. This is no, this is not, this is, this is, I tell you what, I think. Tesla, when you look at the Tesla and the, the Starlink and the communication system and SpaceX and everything they're doing on a global scale and the batteries and the home charge and the solar and the solar the solar roof um, dealing with the roof tiles and now solar. Um, the whole company is just it totally makes sense on a, a global scale. And so I don't think most people get it yet, but they will very soon because if you don't get on board, you're gonna be left in the in the dust. Yeah. I'll make a statement, uh, it's probably gonna be very provoking. Um, but you're gonna think I'm really just off the deep end when I make this statement. I mean, it's going to really, it's going to really generate some interest, right? I'm going to say in 10 years, maybe as long as 15 years max, you will not be able to give away a combustion engine. If I have a new truck today, 10 years from now, I probably can't give it away because nobody's going to leave hmm. right? Because if gas is $7 a gallon, $8 a gallon, $4 a gallon, okay? The overwhelming evidence of having an electric vehicle and the cost savings from that alone and the safety factor from that alone is so overwhelming, you don't want to own a combustion engine. I know that's not that's not something that people are going to hear today. That's what that's Well, it depends on who you're talking to. Right. right. I think there are plenty of people that want to hear that. But yeah, but there is. but there I mean, are there's, there's companies that maybe don't want to right, right. right. oil and gas country, right? right. right. And, and I get it, right? I got a lot of friends in the oil and gas business. And it's not I'm not saying these things that you know being inflammatory or say because look, when it comes to vehicles, we all love our Fords, our Chevys, I love all those kind of cars, right? We love those brands. Hunt is great on the bill. I mean Leaf my Nick's Leaf has been awesome. Uh, yeah, the Avalanche for Chevy was incredible. You know, the actually the new silver auto looks just like the Avalanche I had, right? Yeah. I had three hundred thousand miles on it. looks I think should have just called it, hey, here's the new Avalanche, E Avalanche, because a lot of people said online, right? Here's the new E Avalanche. It's been better marketing, right? Yeah. They're trying to reinvent the model. Um, so, yeah, that's, I, I wanted to present something that was different to the community, because look, we're the face, the, the broadcasters, the, the weather enterprise, we're the face of, uh, of science, we're the face of uh, trying to be uh, reality, what you know, the weather is changing, we got all these things going out. And to be honest, with you, we're out in the field, we're everywhere. When we're out in the communities chasing our filming tornadoes, hurricanes, or blizzards, or ice storms, if you're driving a electric vehicle, it says a lot of things. It says, hey, you know what? This guy cares about what he's doing in the environment. Second thing is, you know what? Boy, I didn't know you could chase. I mean, when I posted, I chased him my electric car. I mean, the whole community was like, are you kidding me? Right. 
backs. Yeah. And I got yeah. tremendous feed, you know, pushback. Some positive, a lot of it negative. Like, you've got to be kidding me. And, and no, I'm not kidding you. I'm, I'm living, I, I preach what I, I live what I preach, right? And I do. And I'm telling you guys, if you don't wake up and take a serious look at just the cost savings and the efficiency and the safety factor of, of going electric, uh, it's extremely overwhelming. It's the most compelling thing I've ever seen in my entire building career, chase career. And the handwriting's on the wall of what's ahead of us. And the sooner you get on board, I, I, I'll tell you, I, I really I really mean this. You can, you can rent a, a car from Hertz right now, I think, through February, rent a, a Model 3. They include unlimited charging, unlimited mileage for the three. So I can charge car free for 130 bucks a day. Um, I tell them, first people to go rent a, a car for two or three days for a Model 3 from Hertz. And just take it out. If you drive an electric car, they're fun, they're zippy. They got it's like it's literally like driving a spaceship. I mean, that's the only way to describe it. They're quiet, they're silent, and I can't tell you how many times I've come up on cows. I told that my talks about cows and wildlife, and they're like, and they don't even know you're coming down the road. They don't hear you. If it's on a bay road, right? It's not gravelly or something right, crunchy right. soil. Hey, the cows, you'll never see the cow eat his kid because he saw a shallow pass. He's like, sure. what? And they'll follow you. It's like, what did this pass me? Because they're stunned. It's serious. I mean, I got pictures. When you take your camera and you see these horses, like, what just passed me? It was something. They don't see, they don't set the swift body. They don't know what it right. is, right? I mean, right. Thank you for listening to the Stormfront Freaks podcast. Find our bi-weekly show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast app. And watch our live and recorded shows on YouTube. For show notes, additional information about this episode, as well as past and upcoming shows, videos, photos, merchandise, and more, visit our website at stormfrontfreaks.com. While you are there, check out our live interactive storm chaser radar provided by our friends at zoomradar.com. If you would like to contact us with questions or make comments about the show, shoot us an email to questions at stormfrontfreaks.com or follow us on Twitter or Facebook. Search Stormfront Freaks. We'd love to hear from you. Join us next time and tell a friend about the Stormfront Freaks podcast.